We're going to uh, begin chapter 11, the book of Hebrews. I've entitled this message, What Faith Is, and we are going to look at verse 1. So, buckle in. This is going to be an exciting study, this whole chapter, and I think that uh, by the time we're done, you'll, you'll know what faith is all about. Chapter 11 <clears throat> begins a, uh, a new section in the letter. We're going to do a little bit of review before we get into it. Though it begins a new section, it really does continue the logical train of thought of the writer. In the first ten chapters, as we have studied through them, the writer has worked to prove just one statement to be true. Now here's your first blank. And that one statement is this, that the new covenant in Jesus' blood is superior to and takes the place of the Old Covenant in animal blood. That's the whole point of the first ten chapters. And he has gone to great lengths to prove that point. Now remember, his primary audience is composed of who? Jewish people, that's right. And these people, some of whom have not yet pressed fully into the faith... And some are, are, are shrinking back because of, of the thought of persecution, rejection, uh, any number of issues that would put someone off. And they're thinking to run back to the safety of their uh, historic religion, uh, the rituals, the things that they were uh, comfortable with. And the writer is making it a point to say, all that's useless. The old has passed away, the new has come. And so that's his whole point. Now, he, he does this in the, in the first ten chapters. Between chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 8, verse 6, by comparing the relative merits of the founders, that's your second blank, the founders of the covenants. Now, remember we talked about the angels? Jesus was better than the angels. We talked about Moses, Jesus is better than Moses. We talked about Joshua and Abraham and all, the, all those ancient people that were esteemed so highly by uh, these Hebrews, Jesus is better. And so he compares the founders of the covenants and he argues that, a, in, in effect, that a superior workman produces a superior product. That's a very simple theme. Who's the superior workman? Jesus. And he produces a more superior product. What's that? The new covenant. Okay? So that's the argument of the first eight chapters. Now beginning in chapter 8, verse 7, through the end of chapter 10, he compares the relative merits of the covenants themselves. Now you may not think this is important, but if you understand the scope of this letter and the scope of those first ten chapters, this, real, this quick review will help you keep things in perspective as we move on to the end of the letter. So, he has a dilemma now. The writer has a dilemma. 
he's proved the superiority of the new covenant over the old to these first century Jewish people. If their hearts indeed are ready to receive salvation, the question is, how would they appropriate it? How would they receive salvation? How do you think they would do it? How would you receive salvation? By faith. How would they receive it? They're going to receive it by the only way they know how. Or they're going to attempt to receive it by the only way they know how, and that is by works. By works. Let me explain to you. Judaism, long ago, prior even to the first century here, had ceased being the supernatural system that God had given to Israel. Supernatural in the sense that these people would receive salvation as they offered these animal sacrifices, but their faith wasn't in the animal sacrifice. It was in the one final sacrifice that those animal sacrifices only pictured. Are you with me? So they knew that these sacrifices were temporary. They knew that they had to keep offering them over and over and over. They knew that they could not. And, and the writer has proved earlier from the scriptures that these sacrifices were not sufficient. The, land, the, the blood of bulls and goats cannot remove sin. So they knew that there, was, there had to be one final sacrifice that all of these pictured. So if they did put their faith in that one final sacrifice, then offering these smaller sacrifices would indeed not be works, but it would be an expression of their faith. Are you with me? Now that was, that was what God intended. That was the supernatural part uh, or the supernatural expression of Judaism that they were uh, to realize. But Judaism had become nothing more, very simply, than an ethical cult. That's all it had become, based on rules. Do this, don't do that. Uh, how many of us are familiar with that? Sure, most of us. If you grew up uh, religious, even if you grew up in a, in, a, in, a, in a Christian church, chances are we grew up as legalists, didn't we? We grew up saying, keep the rules, do this, do that. I mean, our parents trained us, don't wiggle in church. Oh, oh. I mean, I mean, the whole raft of rules, right? And Judaism had become an ethical cult. It taught, in fact, salvation by works. And all of the rituals, all of the sacrifices, the, the rich, rich things that God had given them, which pictured the eternal realities, these, these ended up just being empty forms, no substance, no real meaning. The, the, the sacrifices were ends in themselves. They didn't point to that one last sacrifice that Jesus would make. So Judaism was not in a, in a very healthy place. So now it's necessary. See, the writer has proved to them that Jesus is better, that the new covenant is better. But for them to receive it, it's necessary for him to teach that it's got to be received by what? Faith. They're used to what? Works. They've got to receive salvation by faith. Now, he's going to do this, and he devotes the longest chapter in the letter to this very theme of faith. He pours almost all of his effort now. This is kind of climactic. He's brought them to the, to the brink, and he says, now, this is how you get it. It's by faith. He does it 
And he goes, he extends on into chapter 12, the first two verses, and he bases all, as he, always, as he has in the previous chapters, he bases his argument on the very Old Testament scriptures, the very Old Testament personages that they already profess to believe in. So he's using their stuff. He's using their material to say, see, see, it's by faith. And we're going to do that in the, in the next however long it takes us to get through. Okay? Now in the first three verses of chapter 11, he essentially defines faith. In the first three verses, he'll define faith. We're going to look at verse 1 tonight, and then next week, Lord willing, verses 2 and 3. And then between verse 4 and verse 40, once he's defined faith, he illustrates the, the adequacy of faith. He illustrates it uh, by using all the Old Testament saints as examples. And that's going to be a rich study. We're going to have fun studying through all those examples. And then finally, uh, he, 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 he leans over into chapter 12, and the first two verses of chapter 12, he exhorts now his audience, his congregation, he exhorts them to faith themselves. So he defines it. He gives them all these illustrations, all these examples. They can't walk away from chapter 11 going, I don't believe it. They, gotta, they engage chapter 11, and they're going, wow. And he hits them over and over and over and over, and then... In the first two verses of chapter 12, he says, now, believe. Believe. So that's where we're going uh, in the next uh, several weeks. Now, chapter 11 has been known by a variety of titles. It's been known as the faith chapter. It's been called the Saints Hall of Fame, uh, the Heroes of Faith. And indeed, all of those titles are apropos, and there, there are many, many others. I just picked out a few that I was familiar with. But nonetheless, chapter 11 deals with, very simply, the primacy and the excellency of faith. That's what it deals with. It's, a, it's all about faith. And again, it fits perfectly into the writer's flow of thought, his logical flow of thought, as he has presented his argument. Basically, the new is better than the old. Someone rebuke that fly for me. Okay? Now, remember, Judaism, again, had degenerated into a system of self-effort, self-salvation, and self-glorification. A person's own efforts were at the center of his religious life. Christ wasn't the center. God wasn't the center. The self was the center. This is what Judaism had become. It become, as I said earlier, a, a cult of ethics, ethical behavior. Everything was dependent on the person. It's really no different from what a lot of people experience today. Isn't that true? I mean, we live in a society that is overrun with uh, all sorts of self-help programs, tape systems, tape... I mean, you can listen to tapes. You pay thousands of dollars to make yourself better. You keep these principles, these rules, and you will get better. And none of them necessarily are God-honoring, directly, certainly. Some of them even stolen from the Bible. So, we see that Judaism was a religious cult basically based, built on ethics. As all works systems are, it was despised by God. Why? 
Well, especially because it was a corruption of the true system of faith that God had originally given them. He had despised it. God has never redeemed men by their works. Never. But always by faith. Now, is there a place for works? What is the place for works? Huh? I can't hear you. Yeah, there, there's a place. There's a place for works. Works don't save us, but they give evidence of the fact that we have faith. Isn't that part of James' message, the book of James? He says, "Oh, you say you believe. Show me that you believe by how you live your life. Don't just talk it. Live it." Um, we know that uh, we have been created for good works, haven't we? Paul says that in Ephesians. So, works are always commanded, but they're not commanded so that we can get saved. They're commanded as a byproduct of salvation, a byproduct of our faith. Very important to know that. God does not tolerate any self-imposed ethical system as a means for reaching Him. He just does not tolerate it. It just won't cut any, any, uh, uh, anything with him. Now, this theme of faith that we're embarking on connects back to chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 38. What, what does he say there? What, who does the writer quote there? Who does the writer of the Hebrews quote in chapter 10, verse 38? An Old Testament prophet. Habakkuk. Everybody say Habakkuk. <laughs> Habakkuk. He quotes Habakkuk. Now Habakkuk is an interesting guy. You ought to read it. It's only a little three chapter book. It's real interesting. Habakkuk, God calls him as a prophet to Judah. And Judah is wicked. And God's going to judge them. But the means by which he's going to judge them is by Babylon. And Babylon is ten times more wicked than Judah. And Habakkuk can't figure this out. God says, I want you to go up there and give them a message. Tell them I'm going to judge them. So Habakkuk says, well, wait a minute, God. They're more wicked than Judah. Why would you use the more wicked people to judge your people? And then God instructs him. And then Habakkuk comes away and he realizes that... God's word and God's purposes are sure and true. And in the middle of that, in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, he says, my righteous one will live by what? By faith. And so our writer to Hebrews lifts that right out of that context. And he uses it. But that he connects with now, everything he said before, he uses that principle of faith to connect now with his explanation and his description of faith in chapter 11. The point is, he's just reinforcing the truth that it's faith and not works as the principle of redemption that God has always honored. Faith is the only way to life. And faith is the only way to live. That's what Habakkuk says. Faith is the only way to life and faith is the only way to live. You might want to write that down. I thought that was very good. 
There is no other way. It's by faith. Now these Jewish readers are being told, and this is important, they're being told that though the new covenant is superior to the old covenant, faith was always around. Faith was active in the old and the new covenant. Faith was required under both covenants. In other words, faith didn't just begin with the new covenant. They're in the midst of a works-oriented system that they've created. And it doesn't dawn on them, oh, well, this new covenant, faith just come in. No, 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 faith was always there. Adam and Eve were required to live by faith. Did you know that? From before time began, that was what God would require of us, that we trust him. Now, there's many, many things said about faith today. A lot of people teaching about faith. Some of it good, some of it not quite so good. Some people teach that faith is a power. A power you harness. It's a tool. Some people teach that it's a, a force that you can use to pry out of God the things that you want out of Him. I want to suggest to you that uh, amidst all the things that are taught today about faith, the only way you're going to you're going to be able to recognize the things that are wrong is if you know what the truth is. Does that make sense? And as we study through this chapter, we're going to learn what the truth is and how faith affects every area of life. Okay? So let's now look at what faith is. And we're going to take verse 1 and we're going to break it in half and we're going to discuss each half. First of all, first half of the verse, faith is being sure of what we hope for. Faith is being sure of what we hope for. Being sure of what we hope for. Are we sure of what we hope for? I mean, think about this for a second. In Old Testament times, people had to rest on the promises of God. You see, he had told them that he was going to send a Messiah. Way back in Genesis chapter 3 is the very first prophecy that there's going to be somebody who's going to come and somebody who is going to remove sin, remove man's problem and dilemma, and who's going to, in effect, redeem man. Fix him. Get his whole situation squared away. Way, way back. And this promise was made. Way, way back. God... God's faithful people believed his promises. And you read, you read all through the Old Testament, all the way down through the history of mankind, and you see faithful people believing God's promises. Now, these promises many times were vague, and they were incomplete. Those people did not have the kind of light that you and I have. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the fulfillment in Jesus as we have seen. And we can look back now and see the whole Old Testament and how Jesus fulfills every single prophecy, every single promise. They didn't have that. They had vague, they had incomplete knowledge and understanding. But nonetheless, the little bit of light they had, they knew that it was from God and they believed him. And they lived their life on the basis of what they believed. Now that's critical. 
They had a hope. The hope was someone's coming. And they believed. And so they lived their life on that basis. They were sure of this hope. Are you with me? All right. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. Living in a hope that is so real that it gives absolute assurance. Living in a hope that is so real that it gives absolute assurance. There is no doubt. No doubt. There's no room for doubt. And you don't even have to work hard to keep doubt out. There's just no doubt. How many people doubt that the sun's coming up tomorrow? No, it's a foregone conclusion. We have a hope that the sun is going to come up tomorrow, don't we? Or we have a hope that the earth is going to rotate in such a way and all the things are going to line up and boom, in the morning, the sun's going to be up. Are we sure of that? We're absolutely sure. Can somebody talk you out of it? I mean, can the devil himself come and blow in your ear and say, the sun's not coming up and create doubt in your mind? No! No, you're so absolutely certain of the hope that you have that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. Are you with me? Now, do you have to work hard to hold on to that belief? No, you don't have to work hard to hold on to it. It's just, it's just so real to you. You can't deny it. Are you with me? Make, am I making sense? All right. The promises given to these Old Testament people The promises given to the Old Testament saints were so real to them because they believed God that, as I said, they based their entire lives on these promises. You and I base our lives on the fact that the sun's coming up tomorrow. There's no doubt in our mind. We have a bedtime. We're going to set our alarms. We're going to get up at a certain time because why? The sun's going to be up. It's time to go. Or some of us are going to sleep in. You lucky ones that come to church tonight. I get to be up tomorrow morning. Listen to this. All the Old Testament promises related to the future. And for most of those Old Testament believers, far, far, far into the future. Their hope was way off into the future. But again, the faithful among God's people acted as if those promises were in the present tense. It was a done deal. There was no doubt whatsoever in their minds regarding those promises. They simply, now here's your next blank, they simply took God at his word and lived on that basis. They simply took God at his word and lived on that basis. They were people of faith, and faith gave present assurance and substance to what was yet future. They couldn't deny it. It gave them present assurance of what was yet future. Faith is not some some wistful longing. Some, oh, I don't know. Some kind of loose longing that something may come to pass in an uncertain tomorrow. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's. I don't know if the sun's going to come up. I hope it'll come up. No, it's coming up. There's a big difference. True faith 
is an absolute certainty. True faith is an absolute certainty, often of things that the world considers unreal and impossible. And sometimes we think the same. We have great faith, don't we? We have great faith. But what happens when, when, when our prayers are answered or something we hope for comes to pass? We go, incredible! Can you believe it? What does incredible mean? It means unbelievable. Wait a minute. Oh, you have little faith. I mean, do we live with a present hope that something is going to happen? Do we have absolute certainty that God is moving and working for our good? And then when something happens good, we go, can you imagine that? God heard my prayer. He answered my prayer. Of course. The issue is that you finally prayed the way he wanted you to pray. Isn't that great? If we follow a God whose audible voice we have never heard, if we believe in a Christ whose face we have never seen, we do so because our faith has a reality, a substance, an assurance that is absolutely unshakable. And Jesus said, do you remember when he addressed Thomas after the resurrection? Thomas, was, he, he was noted for his what? His great faith? What was he noted for? His doubting. I won't believe. How am I going to believe until I see him? So I put my hands in his wounds. And boom, Jesus shows up. Thomas? <laughs> and then he falls down. He says, oh, my Lord, oh, my God, I believe. You know, He comes to faith. But Jesus says to Thomas, John chapter 20, verse 29, he says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Why did Thomas believe? Because he saw him. But then Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So you and I, Though we've not heard his voice audibly, though we've not seen his face, though we have believed in, the, in spite of those things, we are specially blessed. That's what Jesus says. Do you need to see him? No. Do you need to hear his voice? No. To believe? No, not at all. In verse 26 of chapter 11, speaking of Moses, the writer talks about Moses. He says, Moses took a stand... Moses took a stand on his messianic hope. Moses had a messianic hope. All the things that he could have had in Egypt, all the things that he saw, all the things that could be his, he disregarded, he gave up for a Messiah who would not come to earth for yet another 1,400 years. Can you imagine you talk about deferred gratification. 1,400 years. Moses didn't know when he was coming. 
But he knew, he knew his Messiah was coming. And all the riches and all the glory of Egypt, he forsook it. In favor of that Messiah. Do you remember the Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They were confronted with a choice, weren't they? They were confronted with a choice of either obeying Nebuchadnezzar, whom they could see very well, or obeying God, whom they could not see. What choice did they make? That's right. Did they make it with any hesitation whatsoever? No. Without hesitation, they chose to obey God. Man's natural response is always to trust in his senses, his physical senses. That's his natural response, always to trust in his physical senses, to put his faith in the things he can see, things he can hear, things he can smell, things he can touch. In fact, we have a saying. I'll believe it when I see it. Right? And we flip that around, don't we? We say, I'll see it when I believe it. Is that a big difference? Huge difference, that's right. That's right. But the man or woman of God puts their trust in something much more durable, much more dependable than anything they will ever experience with their senses. As real as this realm is, as tangible, as visible as this realm is, and the things in this realm, things in that invisible realm are more substantial, they are more lasting, and they are more valuable. And those are the things we put our trust in, not in the things of this life. Somebody said, senses may lie, God cannot lie. Our senses, have you, ever, have you ever sensed something and been terribly wrong about it? Sure, it happens all the time, doesn't it? Oh, I had a thought, I had a sense. I just knew, I just knew I saw this and saw that and heard this and put it all together and I was wrong. We live by faith, not by sight. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us. There was a philosopher in Greece, Epicurus. He lived several hundred years before Christ. He said an interesting thing. He said that the chief end of life is pleasure. Doesn't that sound great? The chief end of life is pleasure. Who would agree with him? Good, Alphonse. Just you and me. Cool. All right. Yeah, there's three of us now. Chief end of life is pleasure. Isn't that what you and I live for? Do you live for grief and sorrow and suffering? No, you live for pleasure, don't you? Now, he wasn't a hedonist, as many people think. The idea that he was espousing, if you, if you understand him, was that he's, he's talking about pleasure in the long run. He's taking the long view of pleasure. He's meaning ultimate pleasure, not just immediate temporary gratification. Ultimate pleasure. He believed that we should pursue that which in the end will bring the most satisfaction. Does that sound good? What are you and I doing? Aren't we doing that? Aren't we pursuing that which in the long run, in the end, will provide the most satisfaction? 
Are we in this life just for the short run? No, we, we have a long view towards life, don't we? Some people would look at Christians and they'd say they're masochists. Just Christians are not masochists. We don't, we don't just love to suffer. That's not our, our deal. Okay? Quite the contrary. We live for ultimate and permanent pleasure. We live in the certainty. We live in the certainty that whatever discomfort, whatever pain that we may have to endure for Christ's sake on earth will be more than compensated for by an eternity of unending bliss and pleasure beyond our wildest imaginings. The Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians. He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived of the things that God has planned for those who love him. He just wait until we get there. He just waited until we get there to blow our minds. And he says, oh, faithful ones, just stay faithful, stay faithful, stay faithful, boy, because when you get here, you're going to go, whoo, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was more than worth it. In fact, I think a lot of us are going to go, man, why didn't I invest more while I was there? And we see what awaits us. And let me just get technical for a second. That phrase, being, or that word being sure, or some, some translations, assurance, in some of your Bibles, in verse 1. Being sure or assurance, it comes from two Greek words. One word, stasis, and the other word, hupo. Hupo, stasis is the word. It literally means that which stands under, or a foundation, if you will. So what is, he, what is he talking about? Well, it speaks of the ground upon which one's hope is built. That's what faith is. The ground upon which one's hope is built. Faith provides the firm ground on which we stand awaiting the fulfillment of all God's promises. Faith does. Now, if you look at verse 13 in chapter 11, it tells us that these Old Testament saints, they died without receiving the promises. They died without receiving the promises, but they saw and welcomed them from a distance. They had a hope. They had a very real hope. It was a present hope. They didn't realize it in this life. But it was so real to them as if to be present. They saw it and welcomed it from a distance. They saw the fulfillment of God's promise with the eyes of faith. And beloved, the eyes of faith are in, have a measurably better vision than our temporal eyes, our physical eyes. They held on to the promise as the ultimate reality of their lives, as the most certain thing of their existence. This was the most certain thing of their existence. Now let's look at the second half of verse 1. Faith is not only being sure of what we hope for, but it also is being certain 
of what we do not see. And I said, what's the difference between those two, those two parts of the sentence? They basically say the same thing, except the second half goes a bit further. This is what I mean. It implies a response. What do you mean by that? A response in terms of an outward manifestation of this inward belief, this inward reality. There's some kind of outward manifestation. Now, the person of faith essentially lives his belief, doesn't he? I mean, you say you believe something, you live your life on the basis of that. People say, what do you stand for? Well, I stand for this and that. Well, does your, are you living your life like you stand for that? Say, I believe in Jesus, but you don't live your life that way. You're not a person of faith. Okay? Noah. Remember Noah? Who remembers Noah? <laughs> Noah truly believed God. He truly believed God. If he didn't believe God, he could not have possibly, think about this, he could not have possibly embarked upon that incredibly demanding and humanly ridiculous task that God gave him if he didn't have real faith. I mean, think about it. You know, we have an understanding that, that it had never rained on the earth up to this point. At least that's my understanding. And God predicted what? It was going to rain. God predicted rain. Noah probably had no concept of what rain was because it probably didn't exist before the flood. So God says, it's going to rain. Noah says, cool. What's rain? (laughs) It's possible that Noah didn't even know how to build a boat, let alone a gigantic ark. But Noah believed God. Noah believed God and acted on God's instructions. This is so rich. He believed God. He'd never seen rain. He probably didn't know how to build a boat. But God gave him some instructions. Is this telling? He said, well, I don't know how to be married. Read the instruction book. Do what it says in the book. <laughs> Make a difference. Noah believed God. He acted on his instructions. Noah had both assurance and he had certainty. He had true faith. He was absolutely sure. He was absolutely certain. He had faith. His outward building of the ark proved his inward belief That the rain was coming, <laughs> and that God's plan was correct for constructing a boat that would float. I mean, it's one thing to build a boat, and another thing, will it float? You've never built one before. Think about that. An ark! Rain's coming. This thing, I, man, I hope it floats. It's going to float, because I'm building it exactly as God told me to build it. His faith was based his faith was based on God's word. 
Somebody write that down someplace. His faith was based on God's word. Not on what he could see. Not on what he could experience. Not on what he felt. His faith was based on God's word. He believed. Think about it. For 120 years, 120 years, he preached in faith, hoped in faith, and built in faith. And then guess what? It rained. (laughs) Big time. The natural man, the natural man cannot comprehend that kind of spiritual faith. Let me say that again. The natural man, the natural mind, cannot comprehend that kind of spiritual faith, the kind of spiritual faith that Noah exhibited. Cannot. We see, verse 27 tells us, that we see God who is invisible. We see Him. How do we see Him? Through eyes of faith. The unsaved person, the person who is not born again, does not see God because he has no means of perception. He has no means of perception. Because he has no spiritual senses, he does not believe in God. He doesn't even believe in the realities of the kingdom of God. How did Jesus put it in John chapter 3, verse 3? Unless a man is what? Born again. He cannot what? Can't see. Can't make sense of. What? The kingdom of God. It's all around. It's in us. But unless you've got the the eyes to see, the spiritual perception, you miss it every single time. Can't even, doesn't make sense to you. That's the natural man, the natural mind. That natural mind, that natural man is like a blind man who refuses to believe in a thing called light simply because he's never seen it. Oh, I don't believe there's a thing called light. I've never seen it. But because you've never seen it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Again, We can be wrong, can't we, in our natural mind? Yet, is there a sense in which all people live by faith? Do all people live by faith? In a sense, huh? I mean, you can't have society without it. I mean, you drove here, and you drove behind some other cars. Some other cars were behind you, and there were other cars coming the other direction. You had faith in that little little painted line in the middle of the street, didn't you? You had faith that no one was going to cross over. That they were going to stay on their side and everybody else was going to stay on their side. You had faith that the guy behind you, his brakes were going to work. You had faith your brakes were going to work. Anybody brush your teeth this morning? You better all raise your hands, man, or keep your, keep your mouth closed. <laughs> yeah, brush your teeth this morning. Did you use toothpaste? Maybe some a little bit of water? 
You squeeze the toothpaste, a little sample, put some water in a glass, run it down the health department, have it checked for safety before you used it. No, you just did it by faith. Didn't give it a thought to it. You're absolutely certain. You were sure. You had faith. Anybody drink a, a soda or something out of a bottle or a glass or something in a jar this week? You know, he popped it open, right? Took a little sample, had it assayed and checked, make sure it was safe to drink and there was no poison in there. No, I just popped it open, drank it right down. Give no thought to it. Why? Get it by faith. So what am I suggesting? I'm suggesting, though, that the natural man cannot comprehend spiritual faith. There is a, a, a way in which we all do, in fact, live by faith. There's a capacity built into us for faith. God's built it into all of us. We need it. Without it, we wouldn't get up in the morning. But spiritual faith operates in the realm of that same capacity. It's not operating in a different capacity. Same capacity. All of us have this capacity for natural faith and spiritual faith can work in that same, same arena. Spiritual faith, though, willingly accepts and willingly acts on many things it doesn't even fully understand. Isn't that true? Do you fully understand the Trinity? Do you fully understand the virgin birth? Do you fully understand the resurrection of the dead? Probably not. Do we believe it? We stake everything on it? Sure. Is this a blind leap in the dark? Are we talking about that? People say, people say, you're asking me just to take a blind leap in the dark. I said, no, I'm not. There's a reasonable, rational basis for Christianity. There's a reasonable basis to believe that there is a God. Look at all that's made. There's a historical Jesus. And there's a historic resurrection from the dead. There's ample evidence that we can point to. But it requires faith, though you don't fully understand all those things, it requires faith, spiritual faith, to believe. And the natural man will not Spiritual faith is radically different from natural faith in one important way. Spiritual faith is radically different from natural faith in one important way. Are you ready? Here's the, here's the way. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. Just as natural Faith or natural trust comes by natural birth, so spiritual trust or spiritual faith comes from God. It's a gift. Paul says, it is by grace that you are saved through what? Faith. And then he says, and that faith is not even yours. That is a gift of God to you. So this supernatural faith, this spiritual faith, is not ours. It comes to us also as a gift. God makes it so we can believe. Is that not wonderful? Does that not help us when you're thinking you've got to crank up your faith? 
Oh, I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe this. I'm going to believe the sun's coming up. No. God puts it in us. He says, faith is what? It is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Have we been promised eternal life? Yes. But it's promised to the dead, isn't it? It's promised to those who die. Are we assured of a happy resurrection? Yes. But we are yet involved in corruption, aren't we? Are we pronounced righteous? Yes. But sin still dwells in us, doesn't it? We hear that we're to be happy, true? But as yet, we still live in the midst of many miseries, don't we? An abundance of all good things is promised to us, but still we often hunger and thirst. God proclaims that he will come quickly, doesn't he? But he seems deaf when we cry to him. Beloved, let us trust God for what we hope for. Let us trust God for what we do not yet see. Let us look with eyes of faith. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. It is rich. Thank you, Lord, for helping us to know and understand these things. Thank you for the very gift of faith that you have given to us. Lord, you've given us each a measure of faith. I pray that as we 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 study this chapter, as we study these examples that are set before us, that we could all exercise our faith. Lord, that that faith would just only become stronger and richer and more sure. Lord, we just love you tonight. You are a great God. And Father, we we just ask you for your grace to be evident in lives of people in our midst who yet maybe don't know you. Church, just be praying for these next couple of minutes. I don't know, but there may be one or two people here tonight that you really, you didn't come tonight really knowing God. You knew about God and you weren't too sure and maybe your friend invited you and you thought, well, because they're a friend, I'll go. But I, I want to just speak to you directly right now. If you don't know the Lord, the Bible makes it real, real clear. There is a heaven, there is a hell. You cannot sense it, but there's enough hints in this life. We see punishments, we see rewards, we understand there's an order to life. We have a, a, a longing to live, a hunger for life. It's built into us. If you be intellectually honest and you, and you just examine the whole created order, you see the, you see the order in it. You see the wonder of it. You cannot walk away except that you be awed. There is a God. And the marvelous thing is, as wretched as we can be as people, 
God still loves us. And not only does he love us, he wants to save us. You see, we're all perishing. We are born headed for hell. God's not sending anybody there. We have chosen to go there. Way back with Adam and Eve. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that everyone come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Now, I just like to offer you that salvation. And as we talk tonight, it's not something that we can deserve. It's not something that we can work for. It's not something that we can earn. It's not something we can pay for. It's something that we just hold empty hands of faith out and say, God save me, I believe. And because he said it in his word, you can be absolutely sure that he will save you. And not only that, he will change you. And he'll make you into the person he wants you to be. Now I'd like to lead you in a prayer. And as I said earlier, there may be just one person in this room tonight. You want to pray. And the prayer, very simply, I'll just lead it from the platform here, and you can kind of hitchhike along with me. I'll pray it out loud, you pray it with me under your breath. But make it your prayer. God looks at the heart. He says, he says come to me with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith that I'll do this. It's like you're just going to surrender now. You're just going to surrender. And if you want to pray with me, you can signal me. While all the other people's heads are bowed and Christians are praying, you can signal me just by slipping your hand up in the air. As I see your hand, I'll know that you want to pray. That'll be a little signal between you and I. And then we'll pray in just a second. Is there anybody at all that would like to pray to receive Jesus? Just slip your hand up in the air. Anybody at all? Okay. I guess we're all Christians tonight, huh? All right. Well, let's stand and let's sing praises to our God one more time before we dismiss, all right? I believe you are the son of God.
Praise His holy 